All right, everybody. Well, welcome. Good to see everybody. Uh, as you know, we are studying the book of Romans. Uh, and so if you want to turn to Romans chapter 6, and as you turn there, I'm going to do just a brief review, because I like to do that for two reasons. One, it helps us to remember. Two, it helps us to, uh, you know, kind of find where we're at in, in the study. Three, and this is also pretty important, Paul, as he is writing, is building logically on each point. And so he's going somewhere with this, and it just really helps to tie it all together uh, because it really is a systematic theology that he's written here. Uh, now, does anybody remember what is the theme of the book of Romans, or where might I find that theme in the book of Romans? Anybody remember? Romans 116, and you could argue 17 also. Yes, uh, well said. Uh, it is that the theme of Romans is the gospel, specifically as it relates to the righteousness of God being revealed. And this is important for a lot of reasons. Uh, one is we need to recognize that the gospel benefits us, but it is not for us ultimately. Um, we're, we're benefiting in that we get saved, but ultimately it's for God's glory. Uh, it's that we see his righteousness. And you probably notice this as we're playing, as we're playing through, as we're flipping through Romans, you'll see that Paul begins by saying God's wrath is revealed against ungodliness because here's all this sinfulness that doesn't match up with his righteousness. And so his wrath is really an outflow of his righteousness. It's he's righteous, we're not. He's rightly angry at our sin. And so then he goes on to like, hey, and here's some of you guys in chapter two that are moralists and you think, well, I'm not as bad as those heathens over there. But he's like, guess what? You don't live up to the perfect righteousness of God either. And so you are under condemnation and we see God being all the more righteous. Does that make sense? Right. We get into chapter three. Um, we see how God has given the law. And so the Jew might say, well, cool, we're good because we have the law. And God loves us, and we're better than everybody else. And he's like, nope, you don't even fulfill the law. In fact, some of these Gentiles fulfill the law that they don't have better than you, even though you have the law. So you're under condemnation, too. It was a really exciting and encouraging and uplifting first three chapters, right? It's just like, this is so, so encouraging. Well, here's the thing. It is encouraging, because in all of those things, we see the righteousness of God being revealed as we see we don't measure up to it. And then we see at the end of chapter 3, where Paul says, and yet we're saved. Like everyone's under sin, and yet you can be saved because of the righteousness of Christ. And so God's righteousness gets a different kind of attention in chapter 3, uh, and we get to see salvation is through faith. A word comes up at the end of chapter 3 called justified. Does anybody remember what the term justified means? Declared righteous. Well done. If somebody had said, just as if I'd never sinned, I would have, like, cringed a little bit. I know, sorry. Justified means to be declared righteous. The illustration we used here is that it was like there's a file of all of your sins that you have ever committed, are committing, and will commit. And that file is coming across the judge's desk, the judge being Christ. And he looks at it and says, yep, you're guilty. Um, and yet, he also knew about those sins from eternity. So when he died on the cross, he took on those very sins. They were paid for. This We call this uh, penal substitutionary atonement. It means Christ died not just for sins abstractly, but those very ones. He knew them all. The debts paid for all of the believing. Pretty good news. So then he looks at that and he stamps righteous on it. 
Not because there's no evidence against you, but because it's like double jeopardy. It's already been paid for. You, he's already taken the penalty for your sin. You can't take it again, so you're declared righteous. So imagine like a big stamp, righteous. Now, um, do you still have like behavior of sin? Yes, indeed. So to be declared righteous is really important. It's usually when we say somebody got saved, we're usually referring to justification. But as we've mentioned here in Romans, salvation has like three aspects. One is justification, right, that we mentioned here in in chapter 3. But what we're going to get at today just a little bit is what we call sanctification. Uh, Sanctification, well, I'm going to get to in a second. But justification is one of it. We have justification, sanctification, glorification. You guys are following along. So in chapter 4, Paul goes into describing how Abraham was saved by faith to let everybody know that this whole salvation by faith is not something that got made up all of a sudden. It is from the beginning. This is what's been taught. Uh, in fact, if you look at Hebrews chapter 11, it goes into greater detail. And it's like all the way back to Cain and Abel. Like Abel, by faith, brought a more excellent sacrifice. Uh, notice that every time we see this, though, it's there was faith, that resulted in obedience. Uh, And this is why the book of James actually goes quite well with the rest of Scripture. That what we see is if you are truly saved, if you are truly in faith, well then your faith is going to be living and active. Praise God. Uh, But it's always salvation by faith and not by works. Uh, Last week, chapter 5, we got into how we are either under Adam or under Christ. We've been transferred under what is called federal headship. Uh, I don't know if we used that term last week. I wasn't here. But federal headship is the theological term for you were once under Christ. He was your representative. Or you were once under Adam. He was your representative. You've been transferred now under Christ. He is the second and final Adam. Oh, we can go into a lot of beautiful theology there. That's why when Jesus is tempted, he's tempted in the same way Adam was, and yet he obeys. He's tempted in the same way Israel was, and yet he obeys. So he's the perfect Adam. He's the perfect Israel. Everything is fulfilled in Christ. All right, so that brings us to chapter 6. Quite an intro, but this is a short chapter. So could I get someone to read verses 1 through 4? Go for it, Bob. Yeah. Okay, so you all remember that Paul has this method where he asks a question, and I can't exactly call it a rhetorical question. It is rhetorical in the sense that he doesn't want the reader to answer, but it's a real question that comes up. And this is something that we should remember. Paul recognizes what the next big question will come up. He'll teach a principle, and he knows he knows from all of his years of evangelizing what somebody's going to ask next. And so there's a logical progression to each of these. They're not just random ones. So after he just got done saying that, like, you're in Christ now, all your sins are covered, you're, you're good to go, well, then the next question is, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? If God's grace triumphs over our sin and where, grace, or where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, then Paul is rhetorically asking, like, well, should we just sin more so God's grace will be greater? Well, he answers with his classic Greek phrase, meganoita, which means, may it never be, but I always like to say, it's a much more stern phrase than that. 
Uh, in English, we would have a more profane terminology for you know, the emphatic no. Uh, imagine that same emphasis and yet no profanity. That's, that's what Meganoita is communicating. He's like, no, absolutely not. It can't be. Don't continue in sin that grace may abound. And notice what his language, his answer for that is. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Well, that's interesting language, right? Uh, any, any quick thoughts here? What does it mean that we're baptized into his death? Yes, Bob. Well, um, so I guess the question is, are, are we talking water baptism or are we talking about like... Um, I would say we're, we're talking spirit baptism of which water is an outward representation of... Okay, so yeah. we're kind of like, you know, just like being baptized into Moses, you know, it would be almost the same as like being baptized into Christ. And so that, um, I, I don't know, I, the thing is, I come from a background where this was taken literally, where it was just like, your water baptism. You were like literally buried with, with, with Jesus and, you know, and, and rose up. So, and this is where salvation happens. It, it, this is like a proof text for that. Yes. So, yeah, so I, I don't know if I can actually answer yeah. because it's, yeah, I, I still yeah. have a lot of spoiling Yeah, let me, let, me, let me bring it around because you're bringing up a really good point. Well, we would refer to spirit baptism as what happens at the moment of conversion that you are regenerated. In, in Ephesians, it's referred to as being made alive. It's the Holy Spirit comes on you. You get dunked in from a, in a spiritual way. You are covered in the Spirit. The Spirit is dwelling in you now. You are in Christ. When we baptize someone with water, um, it is meant to be like circumcision, and, and it is an outward sign of the covenant that you have with God. Right Now, I think at times we've actually de-emphasized baptism a little bit too much. Let me just tell you, it's really important. It's, I mean, it's, we're supposed to obey God and baptism like it's a command, right? So, but it's not what saves you uh, in the same way that Abraham was saved by faith before he got circumcised, before any of his kids were circumcised. Abraham was saved, right? So it's an important thing. Same way, thief on the cross was saved. He never got baptized with water. Uh, same thing, you can get saved you not baptized with water, but if you're resisting water baptism, I would be like, mm, I'm, I'm worried about you. Uh, so they're not the same thing, but they are, man, I will tell you, in the first century, they usually happen at pretty much at the same time. Um, you know, there, was a, there would be a proclamation of the gospel, and people would come in, and they would declare their faith and get dunked. Uh, and I would say, it usually goes together, it's not the same thing. Uh, everybody with me? Cool. Uh, so if you're, if you're not baptized... We need to plan that right away, which I know a couple of you want to be baptized. We need to get that on the calendar. Sorry. Um, but if, if you're not, don't think that that means that you're not saved. Uh, I would just say get baptized, though, quickly. Um, anyway, um, continuing on. So here, though, he's referring to being baptized in the death of Christ. What he's saying is that when you are by the Spirit uh, transferred under the federal headship of Christ, it is as if you were on the cross with Jesus. Because he was on the cross in your place. It's substitutionary atonement, right? So he was there, right? And it's as if you were there because he was your substitute on the cross. So what Paul is arguing is you died to sin on the cross. When you were baptized into Christ, now substitutionary atonement is in place. It is as if you were on the cross with Jesus. So how is someone who has died to something going to continue as if they're still alive in it? And this is Paul's comment. It was like you were crucified on the cross, man. Don't think that you can go on living the old life. You were dead, and you're now alive. And you were alive to sin and now dead to it. 
Important language there, um, which is, again, we've seen this. We see it in Galatians. We see it in Colossians. We see it especially in Ephesians. Uh, we see it here. We see it in the writings of Peter. Uh, I would say we see it in James. Uh, it is a consistent theme throughout all of Scripture, especially in the New Testament. So he says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Notice the two things go together. Um, the hope of the resurrection is directly tied to the reality that you died with Christ on the cross in the spiritual substitutionary sense. Everybody's with me? Notice all of this is because Paul is making the argument, please don't continue in sin just because grace may abound. Uh, there was a popular teaching back in the early 2000s. Uh, Jay Baker, Jim Baker's son, uh, would have answered this question like, well, yes, I believe it was him. Forgive me if I'm wrong on that. But the whole idea that, like, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? There was a whole group of people that said yes. And they would say, well, if you love God, do whatever you want. And I'm like, well, no, 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 no. That's not a good thing. Um, and it's interesting how quickly they would gloss over this very passage. Um, we'll see, though, that there's a few things in Romans that people like to gloss over. Uh, this is one that they would gloss over. They had a harder time doing it. We would generally refer to that as antinomianism. It essentially means, like, lawlessness, like, you just don't care. And it's bad. Um, everybody's with me there, right? Uh, so could I get somebody to read verses 5 through 11? Go for it, honey. Nice. All right, so he's carrying on this. He's essentially taking the same thought and going into a little bit more detail here. Notice this key phrase, though. He says that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Now, this is key because the language here is that like, you're, the part of you that was enslaved to sin died. Like, that's, that's pretty wild and, and strong language, and yet is true. Now, we're going to get into more detail in a little bit, but I just want to point this out. The language he's saying is that ultimately, like, spiritually, your old self died. Uh, how many times we see language of Scripture of, like, now put off the old man and put on Christ. The language is that you need to reckon, recognize that that's not who you are anymore, so don't carry those old clothings of sin. Um, that's in Colossians, I think it's Colossians, where it uses the language of put off the old self and put on the righteousness of Christ. It's like clothing language. It's like, well, why would I wear the clothes of my old corpse? Like, that's really gross sounding. Like, why would I wear the clothing, the, the ac actions of my old life in sin? Like, no, 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 I'm a new man. I need to dress differently as far as my works and spiritual life go. And this is, Paul's using a different kind of illustration to get to that here. Here's a key phrase, though, that I want to bring attention to. In verse 11, he says, So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. A lot of other translations. Anybody else have a translation that says reckon yourself dead to sin? Yeah. Okay, what version is that? 
New King, I will actually say, I think that in this one instance, I prefer the New King James rendering there better than the ESV. This will probably be the only time that happens. Um, and here's the reason. Both terms have the, like, effectively the same meaning. meaning. But, but notice, when, you, when I hear reckon, I think of, I am almost like a math problem where I'm reckoning something, right? I'm, I'm logically making a decision to say, mm, this is how it is now, right? Whereas consider has a little looser language, right? The idea, I am to reckon myself dead to sin. Uh, I, we're going to get into a little bit more detail of this in the next section. Um, so yeah, I should hold on for a second before I use this next illustration. But I want to I draw attention here. The idea is, I need to recognize the spiritual truth that already is. That my sin nature is dead and I don't have to obey it anymore. I don't have to live like that anymore. Because in a very real spiritual sense, it was crucified with Christ on the cross. Now, the effects of that get a little bit more complicated until we get to the next section. So could I get somebody to read verses 12 through 14? Go for it, man. Yeah. Okay. So have you all ever watched documentaries of people that were brought out of, uh, of human trafficking or out of slavery? Um, really interesting. Exodus Cry has some pretty interesting documentaries. Some of them are a little on the dark side. Uh, but they'll, they'll bring young women who have been trafficked into uh, prostitution, something like that, and they'll bring them out of, of that life. And I mean, sometimes it is a real rescue because they've been forced into them. I mean, it's just slavery at times. And so one of the things that they have to be very cautious of is because after a little while, they want to have these women engage in kind of helping take the gospel into the streets where they once worked. Well, they, it's a real problem, though, because now even though the, or they are free from their masters, from their old traffickers, one of the things that will happen is the trafficker will walk right up to one of these women who are out there doing this work, and he'll know her and he'll speak to her as if he still has charge over her. Not that he ever really should have anyway. And she's been so used to being controlled by him that it's a real danger that she'll leave the safety uh, of the, the ministry and just walk right off with him and return to that life. Because it is very difficult for someone who has been enslaved by something to reckon themselves dead to it. right? And this is why Paul, I mean, here's the thing she would be free, right? There's nothing tying her to that trafficker except for just being so used to obeying. And so Paul is going into great language. It's, it's not just a, oh yeah, you're, you're dead to your sin, done. It's that you have to reckon yourself to it because even though you are not under the, the authority of that old master, it's still going to scream to try to get you to obey. Um, everybody, this making sense? Are you with me? Cool. Uh, a little bit of a dark illustration that I think, un, I think sadly, is appropriate. Uh, so let's look to verse... We're moving quickly because this is a short chapter. Um, so you know, I will just point this out. Uh, it says, be careful then to... Uh, let me use the right language here. It says, don't let uh, sin reign in your mortal body to obey its passions. Uh, does my body still want to sin? 
Well, yes, it does. But I am not enslaved to that sin. I shouldn't continue in obedience to it. I should reckon myself dead to sin. And he says, instead, present your members uh, not to sin uh, for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and present your members uh, as instruments for righteousness. The idea is you will serve something. It will be either you are serving sin or you are serving righteousness. Make the decision, reckon yourself on a regular, even daily basis to be in obedience to God. He's going to explain this a little bit more in a second. So can somebody read verses 15 through 19? All right, so we're getting into this, this language of sanctification now. Paul has spent about five chapters, arguably, at least the last two, two and a half maybe, making it very clear that you are saved by grace through faith. You don't have to do any works to be saved. And now he's having to deal with these questions that come up that say, like, well, if I'm not saved by works, then can I do anything I want? And notice in the first part of chapter 6, uh, the question was, well, okay, well, should I sin then that grace may, may abound? And he says, absolutely not. Well, now, he's, his, part of his answer to that question was to say, you are not under, uh, we're not under the old law, but you're under grace. So now what's the next question? Well, should I sin since we're under grace and not under the law? And he once again says, may it never be, absolutely not. And so then he continues on this theme of slavery. And he is saying, don't you understand that you are slaved to whatever it is that you submit to? If you are submitting to the old sin nature, even if you have been freed from it, arguably, you're making yourself a slave again. Why would you do that? He says, instead, he says, continue to make yourself a slave to righteousness. Now, he's very quick to say, I'm using human terms because of limitations of understanding, uh, because he's probably at this point saying, like, I don't want it to sound like it's a huge bummer to be in obedience to righteousness, right? It's joyful. It's good. But he's like, I've got to show that you're either in one kingdom or in the other, or the old Bob Dylan song that says you've got to serve somebody. Uh, You're going to serve somebody. Uh, You are either going to serve sin or you are going to serve righteousness. Uh, Important stuff here. Any comments or questions so far? Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's a. You'd be surprised how many are are like that. Well, and then at some point, I'm like, how much can a child of God be uncomfortable living as a slave to God's enemy? Well, then I'm like, well, at some point I have to say, are are you really a child of God? Like, if you would teach this, if you would live this, at the very least, I should say, be really concerned. Because uh, I think we can all point to the, like, we all have had that time where it's like, I'm sinning, I know I'm sinning, I don't want to listen to the Holy Spirit now, but over time, the Holy Spirit's conviction, because God disciplines those who he loves, it just kind of gets worse, and either you're miserable or you get caught, and it's like, oh, man, and so you repent. Um, those who just continually suppress the truth, remember we talked about this in Romans, in their unrighteousness, it's a much scarier thing. Um, believers will sin, will even resist for a little while, and then it's like it's just too much. But if you can continue till your conscience is completely seared, that's, I mean, that's that's really, really scary. Um, yeah. I would like for us to just think briefly that now at this point in chapter 6, Paul is turning his focus into sanctification. He's clearly communicated justification. Now he's communicating sanctification. And notice that the language he uses here is one of slavery or of of paths. And he says either uh, you're a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness. And if you're a slave to sin, the end of that is death. If you are a slave to righteousness, the end of that is sanctification. You are going to be going in one of those directions, either to death or to sanctification. Uh, I will, without going into detail, have we just noticed that when we say Christ or chaos, it's not just a nice, cool-sounding statement. The reality is, if I continue in sin, I am bringing destruction on myself, and not merely in the sense of God's wrath. God has designed the world to work a certain way. If I am going to walk in continual rebellion against him, uh, bad things happen. Uh, what we have in the transgender movement is an ongoing rebellion against the things of God, against the most basic things. It ends in death, quite literally. Uh, we can say the same thing about adultery. We can say the same thing about addiction. We can say the same thing about plenty of heterosexual sin. It still leads to death. We can say the same thing about gossip. We can say the same thing about slander. Uh, we can say the same thing about theft. It will lead to destruction, and God's wrath is being heaped up, so it'll lead to eternal destruction as well. It's bad news. Whereas when we are obeying God, it will lead to us being more and more sanctified over time. And that is a joyful and wonderful thing. Cool? Everybody's following along with that? Nothing too complicated here. This is not one of those passages where we're like, oh, this is awkward language, and how are we going to... He's speaking pretty clearly. Um, so this last section, I'm going to read this. This is ver- starting in verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Interesting language in itself. It says, but what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? He's saying, okay, you know what? Before, nobody was making you do any righteousness. Like you were free to not obey God because you were slave to sin. Uh, but what was the fruit that was coming of that? I mean, part of him is saying, like, you are in Christ now because that was not going well. You are ashamed of that old life. 
This is for, for the end of those things is death, which we've already communicated. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Once again, language is two paths. Either it's you are on the path to death or the path to sanctification. And then verse 23, this classic phrase that we use when we're evangelizing, this is probably the key verse I go to the most. He says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is, can I just point out, this verse does not seem to fit here initially. Because this is the verse we use to say that salvation is by grace through faith, right? That like, it's totally the free gift. It does fit here. But it's strange because here he's been talking about obedience, obedience, obedience. And then he says, wages of sin is death, free gift of God is, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why does he not say that like the wages of sanctified obedience is eternal life? Why does he, use, why does he drop this verse that is so central to grace right here in the context of sanctification? Any guessing? Yeah, I think that's a big piece of it. He's reinforcing this idea. Um, Here's the other thing I would point out. It means that my sanctification is a gift from God just as my justification was. Now, this is important because let's just face facts that the practicalities of sanctification look a little bit different, right? But it's still by God's grace. Um, Any thoughts or questions before we talk about this just a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. Indeed, brother. Um, I am glad you're you perfect transition here. Because what happens at, sancti- at salvation, but we, we, as we've already mentioned, we get the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul, because of his systematic theology method, he's answering all these questions. He's going to get into more detail in the Holy Spirit in a little bit. Um, right? right now, he's talking about, like, don't continue in sin. Uh, but we've got a little glimpse of this here. And I think Bucky rightly brought up that, like, hey, you have the Holy Spirit in us. And we're either going to suppress him or listen to him. We're either going to grieve him or please the Holy Spirit. Uh, so here's something, here's an illustration from my hero theologian, Dr. John Douglas Morrison. And I'm pretty sure it was when we were studying this very passage, it could have been another one. But he says, at the moment of salvation, you get the Holy Spirit, right? You are made alive and it is as if you have been starving and you have been given a giant piece of New York style pizza as long as your arm. And we're imagining that this pizza is a deluxe pizza that has both sausage and some vegetables, and it's really, really good. It has calories. It has nutrients. You, you need that pizza because you're starving, right? You need to be sanctified. You need to obey the Lord. Uh, now you've been given the Holy Spirit, not to lessen the Holy Spirit. This is for an illustration. As Paul would say, I'm speaking in human terms, right? But as you're holding that pizza, are you still hungry? Well, yeah. I mean, you're still hungry, right? You could probably be a few bites in. You're still hungry, right? Even at the point where you've eaten a big, a big chunk of it and you no longer feel the hunger pains, well, your body still has the effects of malnutrition, right? It's still going to take a little bit of time for the nutrients to soak in. You're going you're gonna to have to keep kind of 
nibbling on the pizza for a little while. It's going to have to be digested. There is a time and a process in putting that into practice, right? And so it is with sanctification. At the moment of salvation, you have the Holy Spirit and you technically have all that is necessary to never sin again. Let's just face the reality, though. You're going to sin again, right? That there will need to be a continual process of repentance and faith, a continual process of filling yourself with the with the things of God, to like the John 15, I'm, I'm filling myself with the Word of God, I'm abiding in Christ so that I'm kind of developing those nutrients, I'm walking in the Spirit, right? All of these things, if I'm going to bear spiritual fruit, have to happen over time as I'm in the Word and as I'm doing what we call the means of grace. I'm fellowshipping with the saints. I'm in the Word. I'm in prayer. Um, I'm encouraging one another. I'm, I'm confessing sin one to another. I'm doing all of these things that build me up over time. But it is all the work of the Holy Spirit in me, right? This is key. Um, it is all the work of the Holy Spirit in me. And what is required of me is a continual obedience where I'm reckoning myself dead to sin and I am obeying God out of faith. We will probably notice that generally obedience, when temptation is so great, seems impossible. You notice this? I mean, you have this, uh, this command to obey God in a way that you never had before and your body says, nope, not going to be able to do that. There's actually an act of faith when I say, okay, I'm going to obey God here. And his Holy Spirit comes in to give us all that is necessary for that obedience. This is the path of sanctification that we should be on. And this is what Paul has communicated. Uh, any questions or comments? This makes sense? Yeah, Kathy. Did you say that we face Indeed. Yeah. Exactly right. Yep. So, um, can I ask our three questions? What does this say about God? This chapter six of Romans. What, what, what does it say about about God? He's righteous. And notice it means that not only is he righteous and has given us his righteousness to pay our sin debt, he is also giving us his righteousness that we can be sanctified uh, as we want. Now, I'm just going to give a spoiler alert because isn't it kind of discouraging when you know you're supposed to be holy? and you sin daily, that that discourages us some. Um, Sanctification is an ongoing process, uh, continuing in repentance and faith. I will just give you a spoiler alert. Romans 8 is about the fact that God has predestined you to sanctification. Romans 8, 28, this language of predestination should not bum you out to say like, oh no, Oh, what if what if so and so is not predestined, or why didn't God predestine anybody? No, it should. He says you're predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. It means you will be like Christ eventually. Like God is doing this work, you just need to be an obedient vessel. He's going to get it done. Uh, Romans 8 is going to be really encouraging. Uh, so good, good comment. So what does it say about us then? Romans chapter six. Yeah. Indeed. Very good. And then how does it relate to the gospel? That the gospel is the power of God. That's right. It is, man. Um, That this same good news of God giving us his righteousness that got us justified, um, it's the same gospel by which we're sanctified. Um, And we can praise God for that. It is still by grace. 
Uh, now, we would use different practical language because we're, we're, all, we're all saying, like, I should submit my body to God rather than to sin. Um, but it's still God's Holy Spirit that's at work in us. I mean, that's just the reality. Um, we talk about uh, monergism and synergism. Anybody heard the word, those two words? Monergism is, we, we, this is where we're at. It means that God alone, mono, saved us, right? I didn't, God didn't have to work along with me to get salvation done. Uh, when we talk about salvation we, and justification, we would generally say monergism. Synergism is the idea of my will working with God's will. We can say to some degree in sanctification that synergism is at play. It is totally God's work, but now I am willfully choosing to obey God, right? Whereas before I was dead in my trespasses and sins, I was not going to choose God. He had to do a work of, of a miracle. But with sanctification, well, now his spirit is in me. My spirit has been made alive. The sin nature is dead. Now I actually have the opportunity to say, yes, God, I'm going to obey you today. And so we're willfully going along with God. And so just for the sake of those two cool theological terms, I think we're good. I'm going to pray and turn it over to Kathy. You've got the gospel, right? All right. Father God, thank you for, um, thank you for the fact that you, you have saved us completely by your grace and you are sanctifying us completely by your grace. And by your grace, you have put your Holy Spirit into us that we actually have the opportunity to obey you where we once could not. So, Lord, may we continue in obedience to your Holy Spirit, giving you glory, that we would walk the path of sanctification, uh, obeying you in these things that are actually joyful. Lord, you've commanded us to be fruitful and multiply. You've commanded us to work hard and provide for our families. You've commanded us to love one another, to confess sin one to another, uh, to care for one another. You have commanded us to do these things that are good for us. Uh, you've commanded us to delight in you. You've commanded us to enjoy your good gifts. Lord, um, we're obeying you. When we go home this afternoon and take a nap, we're giving you glory. Uh, God, when we eat dinner, when we, when we break bread here in a little bit, all of this will be to your glory and it's obedience. And we're happy to do it, Lord. Um, and so sometimes when we have to resist our sin nature, it might not feel as good. And yet it is still good for us, just as eating tacos is going to be good for us in a minute. So God, receive glory. Oh, Lord, sanctify your church. In Christ's name, amen.